Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. My name is TJ Van Toll, and joining us, our special guest for today is James Quick. James, why don't you uh, introduce yourself, tell everybody why you're famous and such. Famous, I imagine everyone has the same reaction. <laughs> not, not really feeling famous, but I appreciate the compliment anyway. So yeah, my name is James Quick. I guess the, the most relevant thing in terms of like potential fame is I've been doing content for several years. So I had kind of a, a roundabout way of starting my career as an evangelist at Microsoft and got into doing conferences and YouTube videos and articles and that sort of stuff. Did software development at FedEx for a few years. And uh, now I'm a developer advocate at Alcero. So it was really important to me after a few years of not doing much content that I realized that's just the kind of stuff that I enjoy doing. So I create lots of content on my YouTube channel, on the Alcero YouTube channel, speak at conferences, all that sort of, sort of fun stuff. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Very cool. I, I know I want to dive into that, the just the content production sort of thing too, because I'm curious about that as well. But mm -hmm. I know you want to talk a bit about Jamstack today, and it's it's actually kind of interesting. We've we've had a lot of Jamstack content recently, but I do want to for our listeners that aren't super familiar with it, maybe you could just start by giving your overview of what Jamstack is, and maybe also why it's becoming such like a buzzword, a real popular yeah. hype thing <laughs> in the industry. Because I feel like you can't like go like every medium blog post you see now has got to have right. like Jamstack in it at least three times. Yeah. Well, I like, first off, I think it is one of, I think it will be around for a while, the methodology, but I think it is one of those fads that we see in web development. People get really passionate about things really quickly. And then it just kind of snowballs in this momentum of uh, people creating content and people tweeting about it and that sort of stuff. So Jamstack, people may have heard this before. The Jam and Jamstack stands for JavaScript, APIs, and Markup. And like neither one of those things is really new to us as web developers. They've been around for years. We've, we've written JavaScript for years. We've called APIs from the front end for years. We've built APIs for years. And then markup is, is really just your HTML for the most part. And you could get into like markdown and that sort of stuff. But those are individually things that we've had for a long time. Jamstack is really just a new way or new kind of uh, methodology of how to combine those things to create web applications. And I think the easiest thing to think about uh, with the goal of Jamstack is you're not actually deploying and managing a server. That's probably the easiest thing to think about. So then you get into categories of like you have static sites and you've got these third-party APIs and services that you use and you could pot potentially get into serverless functions, which I'm sure we'll talk about all that stuff more. <laughs> but the easiest thing I think to think about is you just don't have to deploy a server. And static sites, for example, they can get deployed to a CDN, a content delivery network. And there's no real-time server there that we manage or create that then serves those files. They just get served statically from a CDN. Yeah, I think as developers, we have a thing for catchy acronyms. Because yeah. I remember back <laughs> in the day, like the LAMP stack, right? Mm -hmm. Like that yep. was what? Linux, Apache. MySQL. My, yeah, PHP? MySQL, like PHP. Yeah. yeah. And I remember using that and thinking it was so cool. But I, I like somebody just came up with a really good name for it. So right. I don't know. We're, we're really tight. We're really... Uh, I don't know, attracted to that for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Maybe because it's because we have like all these complex tools. So just giving it like an actual name that like rolls off the tongue really good is, I don't know, there's just some power to that. Well, that, and that's just marketing and branding in general, right? Like that's with not just web development, but anything. If it's catchy, and that's why people make a living creating like 
commercial tunes and like that sort of stuff. Like if you could get stuff in people's minds and you could make it memeable, especially today where people can make all these memes around like peanut butter and jelly and like the jam and the jam stack and that sort of stuff, it becomes fun and it becomes visible for people that may not have heard of it before. Yeah, I think there's a bit of like right time, right place because mm-hmm. I the thinking of the lamp stack reminds me of how much I hated working with servers <laughs> sort of thing, right? Because I remember like, you know, you'd write something with PHP and then finding a server to put all this was the big hassle all of this. So I really like your definition of just thinking of Jamstack is a lot of these things that typically you'd have to like create a server and find a place to host it. That step just sort of goes away or it moves to these other services that sort of do that work for you. So I guess with that in mind, I'm curious, like what was your start with the Jamstack? Like what sort of got you into this? Just Was it just a job you did or just personal interest? Yeah, personal interest is really where it started. So I went through a couple of different phases of a personal blog. And up until two years ago or so, I had a WordPress site and I was had only started in web development. I'd been a developer for several years, but I'd never done anything web until about four and a half years ago. And I didn't really think that I was capable of building my own site, especially a blog, like an actual platform myself. So I used a WordPress site and it worked fairly well. I paid for like a theme builder called Divi and could do the drag and drop layout and create my content and stuff inside of WordPress. But I started to realize like the DevOps of it just really sucked as a developer. Like in some ways, I wanted just more control over the code, but also from a deployment perspective. I was using, I can't remember what the what the plugin was, but it basically makes an entire copy of your local site and then uploads it completely to your WordPress site. And it worked, but it just it didn't feel right to me as a developer. And that's where I kept hearing about like Gatsby and Next.js. And I kept hearing about these things and I kind of decided like, hey, I'm probably good enough to just take a stab at this. And so I created my my blog in Gatsby, which is not only a static site generator, but that's really what it's been known for. And that's really been its bread and butter so far, especially with with blog content. So I watched tutorials and I created my uh, the first version of my site a couple of years ago. And it's gone through many iterations since then. But that was my first introduction to... Like, all right, I write code in Gatsby. It pulls uh, blog content at the time from Markdown. It builds it. And I literally just connected a repo, my repository to Netlify, and everything was done. I didn't have to do anything else. From then on, my setup was I just push code and it's taken care of for me and it's deployed. And that was an amazing experience. It's funny because it there's a super popular trend because I'm guilty of this too, of of like developers just getting their start, like growing their brand by just working on their own personal site. Because uh, it's kind of crazy because I have some background with WordPress and then I originally used Jekyll to build mm-hmm. a lot of my site. And at the time, that was like the OG Jamstack, right? Because <laughs> you were you were just putting together, but it was still like, it was at the end of the day, a static site. But like any good developer, right? You want to over-engineer your own sort of blog, your own presence. Now, like Jekyll seems so antiquated, right? So mm-hmm. now I look at things like Gatsby and Netlify as like, oh man, I that I feel like I'm 10 years behind now still on Jekyll. <laughs> Yeah, again, it's it's all about phases, what catches on and what becomes more popular. It, it's I think it's been web development for several years. The, the hot new thing comes out and people are pretty quick to, to jump ship. So I, like, at the end of the day, it's all about what works for you. That just happened to be my transition for WordPress. And it was infinitely better, more natural, more what I really expected as a developer than the experience I had in WordPress. Yeah, and I'd say too, I, that's probably a good recommendation for people listening to this. Because since I can relate to so much of your story that... 
just building your own little thing. It doesn't have to be anything special, but you can learn a lot by going through that process of just like actually solving that problem because it's, it's both, I guess, easier and harder in some ways than you think it would be, right? You, you, <laughs> you feel some of the, the struggles of, and you can do so without of like, you know, do things that you might not be able to do during your day job sort of thing either, because chances are your, your day corporate job, you don't, don't necessarily need to spin up a new mm-hmm. Gatsby site necessarily. I mean, maybe you do that. Maybe you work at a pretty cool job, but chances are you're working on some internal apps or something. Yeah. And I would just to add to that, like, well, one, at my job at FedEx, like I can't tell you how many times I came into work and we had to solve some problem. And just from like things that I had built on my own, I was like, oh, I know how to do this because I've done this recently in some some like course that I took or some sample project. And then with my personal site, it's it's been progressively added, like added new things to it over the course of a couple of years. And to your point, like I've learned so much in actually doing that. When at the time I was really kind of nervous of whether or not I was ready, but it's this progressive thing, and you can kind of see the side evolve with your learning process and get better and better and add more features. And then now I'm just that much more prepared to build other things because of this experience. Yep, totally agreed. From there, why don't we talk about? I know we've we've talked about a little bit of different like platforms and tools related to Jamstack. Do you have like recommendations? You mentioned Gatsby and such, but other tools because I think once you get some of the basics down, like you can go like all in on Jamstack and really like, I don't know, there's lots of different options. So why don't you maybe lay a framework for some of the things that are out there and what you can do? Sure. Uh, the interesting thing, it's it's like kind of tied to Jamstack, but kind of just tied to the, the web development ecosystem now is there's basically a service for everything. Um, like I work at Aussie <laughs> we're an authentication third party provider, right? So like that's one thing that you could use. You can certainly use other ones, but uh, that's an option. I also use Cloudinary for some of my image and media management. Uh, for a couple of cool new databases, I've used Airtable, which is like a, a hosted kind of Excel sheet that actually is really powerful as a database. And it has great APIs to work with. That one's super cool. I've worked with FaunaDB, uh, which is really kind of optimized for the Jamstack, which is nice too. Uh, and then just like outside of all of the different services that are out there in different categories. Uh, Technologies that I'm using specifically, I still have Gatsby for my personal site. It uses Sanity.io as a headless CMS. So all of my blog content and some other content is stored inside of Sanity. And then I've recently gotten really into Next.js as a framework, which really just combines uh, almost everything that you would want to do in React. It can really do everything that Gatsby can, but then can give you another benefit of having like server-side rendered pages and just kind of a natural tie-in with what is serverless functions. In Gatsby, you're kind of on your own to figure out how to do that part. Next.js kind of bakes all that stuff in together. And so I've been doing lots of work with Next.js recently and really loving how you... Like you can basically build a full-stack application kind of how you're used to, but you still don't have the responsibility of like deploying and managing an entire server. You just write these functions and those are your endpoints and you're kind of off and running and good to go. Awesome. So... I wrote a few of these down because I want to dive into a few of these. Sure, yeah. That was an awesome list. So now I want to dive into some of these. So Cloudinary was new to me. Okay. So that's Cloud I-N-A-R-Y, right? Cloudinary? Yes, absolutely. So yep. what, do, what does this thing do for me? Because I don't think I'm totally understanding. Sure, yeah. So the general... the I think the general phrasing is like image and media management and optimization. So what that means more specifically is I could I could potentially store my images in Cloudinary. So if I wanted a place where I could store my images, that's probably the simplest thing that Cloudinary can do. 
The second thing, though, is it's really around these transformations and optimizations. So what Cloudinary can do is when I store an image in Cloudinary, I can have... I can do it in different ways, but I can have like a publicly accessible URL for that image. And I can also add these query parameters to specify like if I want different aspect ratios or different sizes of this image or different formats of the image, I can tell Cloudinary in the query parameters and Cloudinary will like generate those things on the fly and then cache them. So if I upload like a 1920 by 1080 and I scale that down to whatever, I want a version of that that scaled down like a fourth of that, I could tell it, hey, give me one that's a fourth of the width. It will generate that thing on the fly and then it's caching that that version of the image as well. So subsequent requests, that image is this then just ready to go. Uh, and this is really powerful. I've done a decent amount of like looking at image optimization in in the web recently. And this is this is one of the easiest ways to have like a, a platform like Cloudinary just really jump in and take care of the, the majority of that work for you. Yeah, I feel like every time we bring up one of these services, I feel like I can tell my like old man walking up hills <laughs> to schools both ways things because I think you you truly appreciate when you've done some of these things without these services. Because I remember back in the day, I'd have scripts that would take an image and generate it take that image and like regenerate it in five different ways. And then yeah. I'd have to throw that in some folder structure that was absolutely awful because it had 2000 different images to do these different dimensions. So it is kind of cool. I'm, yeah, I'm looking over their website and like, basically, like you said, you just configure like almost like a query string or a path to the image mm-hmm. and it sort of takes care of that. So that's pretty cool. And one, just a little bit of kind of commentary on image optimization. Gatsby has had a, a Gatsby image component for a while. That's been one of like people's favorite features in Gatsby. And it does something similar. So if you reference an image and you go through a Gatsby build, it will do the same type of thing, generate multiple versions of the image. And then you just use their image component and it will basically request the appropriate one based on the size of the screen and do things like lazy loading and like fuzzy loading, if that's the right word, where it shows you like the fuzzy image before it loads yeah. in the, the real one. And then uh, Next.js 10, which just got announced and released a couple of weeks ago at their conference, they kind of came out with their image component too. So that's like another feature that Next.js is uh, now really just ready to do everything that Gatsby can, plus more, at least uh, from my perspective. So maybe we could tackle Gatsby next, just because it's the foundation of some of these these other tools you've mentioned. So Mm -hmm. Gatsby is basically, and I've used it only in a limited fashion, but basically tooling around React to help you mostly build static sites, correct? Yeah. And they, they're they really careful about the wording now of, of not limiting themselves to the static site generation. That is certainly what they're most well known for. It's what their ecosystem has really been like built around so far. But you can basically do anything in Gatsby that you could do in regular React. So they have this, this hydration you'll hear about in, in different areas. But basically what it will do is it can serve a serve a static page. And then on that static page, it can then like run JavaScript in React. So you can go and interact with APIs. You can do authentication. Anything that you're used to doing in React, you can still do in Gatsby. Do you have any like... Because obviously the Gatsby world is getting to be quite huge. Do you have like some tips and tricks some things that people might not have known Gatsby could do? Or maybe some like plugin recommendations around Gatsby? As far as plugins, like the really cool thing, the thing that excited me about Gatsby was just that there's basically a plugin for everything. Like if you want to include YouTube videos, like from like for my personal YouTube channel, there's a YouTube plugin, there's a Google Ads plugin, there's a Google Fonts plugin, there's integrations with all the different data sources that you could think of. Like we mentioned 
a couple and like all the headless CMSs and things like that. Like they have integrations for all those things. So that is by far one of my favorite features of Gatsby of them just like, hey, you want to work with this thing? We've got this plugin to help you and make it as easy as possible. Have you found, because like the one weird thing about Gatsby to me is I know it's fairly GraphQL based mm-hmm. in terms of how it like stores things, right? Stores yeah. data around, <laughs> around your site. Have you found that to be like a pro or a con or working around that? And part of my hesitation might be just, I'm not a GraphQL person, right? So it might just be that that's not my expertise. So it feels a little uncomfortable to me, but I'd be curious what your perspective is on that. Yeah, I would say if you've got experience with GraphQL, then it's certainly a a pro because that stuff is kind of set up for you. If you don't, that's kind of a con. And I came into Gatsby with no GraphQL experience at all. And I still... So probably very similar to you. I, I don't feel like I'm very strong with GraphQL. Like I, anytime I have to change my queries to do something specific, I'm having to figure out what the syntax is. So for me, I've kind of learned like it was just part of it originally. Now I've started to learn. It's kind of a con for me. I don't I, like I'm I'm fine most of the time. This is maybe a little controversial for GraphQL people, but most of the stuff that I do, I'm fine with doing REST and just getting back JSON and parsing that. So. The thing, one of the things that I really like about Next.js is you can you can write that code. Like you can just write a regular fetch request to get whatever information you need, and then be be kind of used to to the workflow that you already have, but easily incorporated into the different capabilities that Next.js has. Versus Gatsby, you still can do that, but it's really going to push you towards the GraphQL route. So if you don't have that experience, it's a little jarring to get into it. To be honest, yeah, I found it like like even their original. They're, they're like intro tutorials even walk you through some stuff. And it's like, well, I can follow steps, mm-hmm. right? In a tutorial, but if there's a big jump between that and being able to do, once I get into my own custom environment and being able to pull some of that stuff off from scratch is just a little bit intimidating. I agree. I've definitely definitely done a lot of digging in Gatsby. And, <laughs> and like now I'm pretty comfortable with it. I'm pretty familiar with it, but it was it was a learning process. And I think had I... I think the learning curve for me personally would have been smaller getting into Next.js directly just because of I could have continued to do the stuff that I was most comfortable with. And like from a learning perspective, that's been really great because now I know more about GraphQL. But from a just getting up and running perspective, that was more that I had to learn up front. Yeah, it's interesting too because it, it could also be like a learning opportunity too because it's it's a fairly... It's really, at the end of the day, it's not that complex. So at least the the parts that you have to use in Gatsby. So if you're someone that's looking to learn GraphQL, it's, it could be a mm-hmm. nice little intro to the topic too. Yeah, that's a that's something I talk about a lot actually in giving talks and YouTube videos is like you can kind of choose a topic that you're interested in learning and commit to doing it and then learn whatever you need to to create that content. That's a great <laughs> way to kind of force yourself to learn. So why don't we, uh, maybe the next one we could get into is next. <laughs> pun intended. Yeah, pun intended. There you go. Pun intended, I guess. But... <laughs> Next is basically it, that's one I haven't spent a whole lot of time with, but is it basically like Gatsby plus plus more or less? I, like yes, that's my interpretation. I don't I don't think Gatsby would like that, but <laughs> from my perspective, yeah, because it's now it's really improved on its static site generation, like generating static pages, so it can do again the same type of stuff that Gatsby can do in that regard. It can still use the hydration process. So anything you can do in regular React, just like Gatsby can, you can do that. But there's this third layer of the server-side rendering stuff that Gatsby can't do. And you can build like your a more traditional web application where it's all server-side rendered. You can do that in Next.js. And the, the 
beautiful thing about it is two things. It's tying in these API routes. So it's basically gives you a framework for including serverless functions. And then it gives you these two hooks that you can attach to each page, get server-side props and get static props. And that basically, just by defining one of those functions, determines whether that page will be statically built and served or whether it's going to be server-side rendered. So can you give an example of like where that would be helpful? Like to, for people that are totally naive, which definitely doesn't include me, to server-side <laughs> rendering, like what's an example, like a, your classic example of hey, this would really benefit from being able to be rendered on the server? Yeah. So one of, one of the examples of that, probably the easiest one, if you think about a WordPress blog, if, if I visit a blog post that's hosted on WordPress, it sends a request to the server. The server then makes a request to a database. It gets the information about the post and then it uses that to generate the HTML that then goes back to the browser. So the benefits of static sites first is like there's, there's no visit real time to a database. That page is already there. It's already been created. It's ready to just be sent back. So there's speed and security and some other things. But sometimes you get into content that's just more dynamic. Some, sometimes it's just like a scale thing. Like how many pages can you really pre-generate? How many pages can you generate statically? If you have a million pages, you probably don't want to do that. And then additionally, if you're getting information about stuff that changes a lot. So if you're getting like prices for e-commerce stuff, you may want to pull that every time to make sure that you're getting the most up-to-date prices versus if you just do it statically, now, if you update prices, you have to do a, a complete rebuild of the site to get those prices to then be reflected on the on the deployed site. Actually, like that angle, I, I hadn't thought of it on the sheer scale side, but you're right that some of these static sites, especially if you're using them at scale, get to be absolutely enormous. It's mm-hmm. it's actually one of my biggest problems with my now like years old Jekyll blog. And my blog is is not the most actively maintained thing, right? It's not like there's an absolute ton of content. But even my build process is getting into the minutes, right? And like it's starting to be like not necessarily a showstopper, but I could see how if you're building for like a company and you're generating something like, I don't know, like product pages, or even if you're at the scale of you have a really big corporate blog blog and you have thousands of pages, well, you can't really have a build time that goes into like 30, 45 minutes. It's gonna start to actually just be prohibitive for what you're actually able to accomplish. So that's sort of an interesting angle on that that I hadn't really thought of. Absolutely. And there's there's one, so I haven't done this myself, but I, it's like mind-blowingly cool to me. In Next.js, for example, with really big scaled applications like we're talking about, if you wanted to have the benefits of static pages for, let's say, your top 100 or 200 blog posts, you can decide like, hey, I'm going to go ahead and and statically build those and then for the rest of the pages, we'll basically build them on the first request. And this is this is like so cool to be able to combine all of these technologies to give you the best of every world that you can imagine. So you have these static like top 100 or 200 posts. Those get all the benefits of static. Then you have, all right, if they request one of these other ones, let's do a server-side render page, send it to them, and then cache it. So let's keep that thing now as a static page uh, so then you come back or someone else visits it. And now you get all the benefits of that page of static on that page specifically. Yeah, it sort of messes with your head in a sense, because <laughs> you like we're so used to, I mean, I come back in the day, it used to always be everything was rendered on the server, right? Mm-hmm. So you always thought in a server mindset because you had PHP or Java or .NET or whatever that was rendering it. 
And then when we started to move to static, it was like, well, you had to make a choice. It's either going to be server or static. So either you have something that can be very dynamic or it's got to be 100%. It's just HTML, right? And now we're living in this era where you have so many choices. You could sort of how you architect your things. Some of it can be static, some of it can be not. I and mean, the tooling around it is actually kind of neat. And that's why I think we're, like I mentioned, Jamstack is is not, it's not new technologies. Like there are some third-party tooling and, and providers and stuff that are new. But the con, the the core of what you're doing is not new. It's just creatively combining them to do them in slightly different ways. And that opens us up to like this ultimate flexibility of you can pick and choose when and where you want the benefits of static versus dynamic, static versus server-side render, that sort of stuff. And, and that gives us kind of this full control over what, what the experience we want users to have. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun and having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and you use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at reactroundup.com slash Raygun. Yeah, so I'm curious. Next thing I'm wondering with Next.js is, so when you do get into the server-side rendering, you do have to have a server then again at some level. So what are your options? Like what sort of server um, options do you have for Next.js? And like, where do you host this? Is this something that's going to like be expensive or is it fairly cheap and lightweight? Yeah. So this is where the idea of serverless functions comes in. And serverless functions is a little bit of a misnomer. It doesn't actually mean there's no server. It really just means that from my perspective, from your perspective as a developer, you're not responsible for a server. So let's say, for instance, if we were to build a Node Express application, you would you would import or install Express and you would do a, create the Node app and then you do app.run app to start your Node server. Serverless functions, you're not doing that. You're literally just defining functions, which basically represent your endpoints. And those things, like with Netlify and their serverless functions, those get hosted on AWS underneath the hood, behind the scenes. But that's completely abstracted away from you. All you do is check in a file to your source code and Netlify like grabs it and hosts it and takes care of it for you. So there's no server creation, server maintenance, no server updating. There's none of like server responsibility on my end. So Next.js basically has these API routes built in, which then get deployed as serverless functions. It just gives you a little bit more of a framework of how to combine them together. So the easiest place to host that is Beaversell, the creator of Next.js. Their hosting is kind of optimized as you would expect around Next.js. But they've got, I think, I think Cassidy Williams has like a plugin that you can use to do the exact same thing on Netlify. You host it on Netlify. You can host it like my 
personal sites. It's not using Next, but it's using serverless functions. Like I've got several that are hosted on Netlify for free, including the serverless functions. So again, no server responsibility. Costs are still relatively low. If you scale up, then you're paying for like usage on the actual serverless functions, but you're not paying for the server space, especially when you're not using it. That's kind of the benefit or one of the benefits of serverless is you're only paying for what you use versus if I were to deploy a node app to Heroku or DigitalOcean, I'm paying for that node server regardless of whether or not I'm using it. Yeah, it reminds me like back in the day when I was doing PHP stuff, the PHP servers were not cheap, which really sucked because lots of times you would pay versus different tiers, right? So it wasn't based off your usage. It was like, oh, you had to go to like the business tier if you wanted so much capability. Mm -hmm. But the thing is like, I was building like stupid little sites that did did not need much processing power. So that sort of like on-demand pricing is quite nice. Yeah, Netlify has been my ultimate playground. Like all of the demos and things that I've created in the last year and a half or so are deployed on Netlify and I've never paid a a dollar or a penny for any of that stuff. Yeah, actually my so I'm a big Netlify fan as well and actually my only concern is the fact that like I built so much with them and I haven't paid them money like I'm wondering how they're actually <laughs> making money. I'm assuming there's companies out there using some of their more premium stuff, but mm-hmm. it is kind of crazy to me, especially someone who's done this stuff and paid lots of money to do similar things in the past that how much you can get away with with completely free on Netlify. Yeah, I think the big part of that is like the static hosting for sites that Netlify provides is so minimal. Like to pay to host a few files for a website is so minimal. And then you're looking at like, all right, during a build time for these free sites, you're paying for whatever server that the builds are going on. But I think I think the approach is like Netlify has won over a lot of developers, right? Like you love Netlify. I love Netlify. It's so easy. It's the easiest place for anybody that's getting started, especially to to host a website, like by far, in my opinion. And so because of that, now, like as those people, as we then maybe need a feature in Netlify, maybe we pay for it. We pay $10 a month or whatever their like entry-level plan is. They have analytics, I think, is one of those paid uh, things that you can get. So they're more true analytics. You can pay for that. But then also, when you or I or someone else goes back to like a company product, and and we need to build like a new site that can be hosted statically, but it needs to also have serverless functions maybe that really scale up or whatever whatever it is. Now we already are familiar with Netlify. We believe in them because we see them in the community. And now we're willing to pay at a company level. And that's the same thing like me as a developer advocate. That's my goal too. Like I, I want to show that people can have a great experience using Auth0 to do authentication in their sites for free. Enjoy the free tier. Hopefully it works out really well for them. And then later on, if they need something bigger, that may lead to like a paid opportunity. Yeah, and it's similar with like Next.js and Vercel also. Like you said, mm-hmm. they provide great hosts. Like, you know, what do you know if you need good hosting for your Next.js app? It turns out they provide it. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's funny how that works out. Uh, I did have one. This is maybe a little bit specific question, but when you talked about Next.js, like API, API routes in terms of like serverless endpoints, I'm sort of curious about that. I'm wondering if you can help me, like this might be hard through an audio podcast, but to understand sort of how this would work. So suppose I'm like building my my blog or my corporate blog on, on Next.js and I had like one bit that's like, oh, I had like a stats graph or something, something that I want that's going to be very dynamic and I want to pull from the server mm-hmm. every time. So is did I understand you correctly that basically you'd you create like almost like a different file that 
Next.js would automatically know, hey, this needs to come from the server and take care of like even deploying that sort of thing automatically for you. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a lot of magic, to be honest. But you've got... Next.js is a little bit more opinionated than what you would do with potentially like configuring Netlify functions with Gatsby. Next.js says, here's an API directory. Any file that you put in that directory and it matches, it exports this function that takes in a... I can't... I guess it's request and response for that definition. Any file that's inside of API that exports that thing, we're going to go ahead and host that thing as a serverless function. And there's there's like nothing else you have to do. And all of that corresponds to like if you were to build a Node Express server yourself or any like PHP or whatever, when you define an endpoint, you tell it like, hey, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be this type of method and I'm expecting this type of data. And then you have the code that runs. That's all you're doing in these files. You're defining a function that takes in a request response. You can check any sort of headers or, or HTTP method. Uh, you do any of that stuff you want and then the code that you want to run and then just return back. So it's just taking those endpoint snippets, putting those in a separate file in, in a format and then uh, Netlify will, if you configure it that way, will take care of the rest. Vercel will take care of the rest. Next.js will really just do, do the next behind the scenes magic step for you. Yeah, it's kind of slick because I've definitely went through that manual process before, which is kind of why I'm asking because back when I've set up serverless functions, there's always a bit of ceremony that you don't want to do, or at least in the, the past where like you have to go out to some service, you have to create it, you have to get the endpoint, then you have to put it in your app and figure out how to integrate it. So it sounds like this is basically just sort of an opinionated way of baking all of that in for you. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely my... It's one of the, again, one of the reasons that I'm really liking Next.js is that it just kind of assumes you, you probably will want something that will go here. So we'll tell you where to put it and we'll take care of the rest. So the next tool, I still have my list of tools that you, you <laughs> rattled off earlier because I'm still curious about these things. One we haven't talked about yet is Sanity.io um, mm-hmm. because this is a new one for me. I'm curious what this tool does for you. Sure. So I guess uh, the idea of a CMS, something like WordPress, we really started with like you not only can WordPress host your data, right? Like you put your blog post information inside of WordPress. It also will display your data. So it, it actually is your site as well. And it comes packaged with the database. And I guess it's I guess it's PHP behind the scenes that actually like it's a PHP server and serves those pages. So we've started to move away from that to now separate the idea of like, here's our headless CMS, which means that it's just going to be like a, a graphical interface, a GUI to be able to do CRUD operations on the information for our site, like blog posts, for example. And then it's going to expose APIs of different whatever API it exposes. And then you can use whatever front end you want to be able to call to that headless CMS, grab that information, and then display it in your site. And you can build it statically. You cannot build it statically. You can do whatever you want. And WordPress actually exposes similar API, so it can it can be used in the same vein. But there's lots of different headless CMS options. And Sanity is one that when I was looking around, I, I got some uh, really good commentary from people of, of them enjoying it and then got some commentary and messages from a couple of the founders just saying like, hey, here's some clarification, here's some details and the things that they said on the pricing structure and how it could be used. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to give this a shot. And so I started to set this up on a stream and somebody from Sanity joined my stream and was like talking me through how to set this up into my site and move over from using embedded markdown files to now hosting all of my stuff inside of Sanity. This is another one I can kind of see the appeal of because my personal blog has like one folder that's just got 100 markdown files in it, (laughs) right? 
And I can say from firsthand experience that gets kind of unwieldy is you try to do anything with that over time. And that's, that's exactly why I moved away. And I didn't even have like, I maybe had 15 posts or something. But I, I was just like, I, it just it just felt weird to me. Like as I scale this out and I get to 100, like I don't really want 100 additional folders inside of my repository if I don't need it. And that's why I was looking for somewhere else to have that information and then just pull it into my site. So then presumably there's like a Gatsby plugin or something that lets you actually integrate the content that's stored in Sanity with your actual site, right? Yep, yep. There's a Gatsby plugin. And as you might expect, it allows you to then access that data through the GraphQL layer, just like all the other ones. But yeah, this like at that point, it's fairly easy, especially if you already know how the GraphQL queries work in general. Now you're just pulling the information from a different place. And then do you actually store like what's the writing experience? Like, can you just write and then like upload your content to Sanity? Or do you use like a client that they provide? They have yeah, so they they have a GUI and Sanity is a little different in that you get the source code for the actual dashboard versus a lot of the other ones they host it for you and you don't really have any control over the dashboard. Sanity is really fully customizable. That's one of the things as a developer was interesting to me. So if I if I need an extra widget or some extra functionality in the dashboard, I could in theory add it. I haven't done a lot of that stuff, but I have that capability if I want. So I would do all of my all of my editing right inside of the the sanity editor inside of the dashboard. Yeah, I like that. It looks like they have collaboration stuff too, because I know that's one thing. I I am also a developer advocate. I work for Progress, and one of the things we struggle with is like we like writing in Markdown, but then when it gets time to like share it with others and get feedback and such, like people want it in things like Word or mm-hmm. all these Google Docs or whatever, and then keeping like here's my canonical source which is in Markdown. And here's the thing that I'm like sharing to others that I have to like copy and paste into <laughs> Word or some bizarre thing that I'm doing. Yep. It's it's always a big hassle. So I think the last one I wrote down, I'll give you a chance for a shameless plug here is Auth0 because I, I know it's a tool I've used before as well. And it basically like is this the short version of it, like you're building a site and then you don't want to take care of authentication yourself, right? So you almost like authentication as a service. Is that sort of a, a good short way of putting it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the probably the most important thing is I wouldn't say you always need Auth0. I would say like if you're building something and you want the practice of kind of setting up authentication and like handling and storing passwords and hashing them and doing generating JSON web tokens, if you use those, like that's cool experience. I've done that in the past myself. <laughs> I might disagree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. not, not a cool experience. I think it... I, I mean, it, it's an interesting experience. I'll give you that. Cool is not maybe a word I would use. <laughs> practical experience. Like just to... I usually, regardless of me working for Osiro, I would want to know how some of the stuff behind the scenes works. Like I usually like to know what tools are doing for me. So in that sense, it would be a practical experience to have, I think. But um, I think that the difference becomes like if you're really trying to build something at scale and you're trying to grow an application, it's a lot more than just handling login and sign up. There's things like email confirmation, like setting that up is not trivial. There's things like password reset, setting that up is not trivial. And then you get into much deeper things like two factor authentication and passwordless login and like all these other really crucial features that are just not so trivial to do yourself. And that's where you start to look at like, all right, another platform like Auth0 has a dedicated team of developers of 100 or so developers. They're up to date on the latest security things that are going on. They can add some of these features that would take me a lot of time and energy and and potentially people to implement. 
And now I can just take that off the shelf and really focus on whatever whatever it is in my application that might makes my application special. Yeah, I, I like the way you phrase that too, because I think actually that's probably a thread that runs through all of these tools. Like just because there are services out there that make some of these processes easier, that doesn't replace knowledge that you might have had from doing it the manual way. Because sometimes like a service doesn't automate everything. And mm-hmm. lots of times you'll have to debug something something goes wrong or something weird is happening and having knowledge of, hey, I roughly know how HTTP works or I have a rough idea of how caching works uh, can really help you actually figure out what's going wrong because this is software development. So things are always going to go wrong. (laughs) You're always going to have to figure out, you might have to configure a service. You might have to know whether a service is a good idea for you or not because there are times where you need to do something more custom than one of these offerings is going to provide. There's always a, a bit of, and once you get to a certain scale at anything and a certain level of complexity, it, you can't necessarily automate all your problems away to some other person, to some other thing that's doing it for you. Yeah, there's always... And that's why like cool, maybe not the best word of that, <laughs> that experience, but practical. Like going through that, you're, you're not necessarily later on going to regret having done that stuff yourself because you have that extra bit of background that you can then apply. If something does go wrong, if something, like you said, is hard to debug, You've got some extra knowledge that maybe a lot of other people don't. So I like I still think that that's great, useful experience. Whether or not you think it's fun, I guess is a different story. Yeah, because I'd say even like knowing, because I I'd be curious too if you have advice for people for knowing when like when Jamstack is a good idea or not, like when when a server is a good idea or not. And I imagine some of that would just come from experience. Just if you've built things before knowing when static is a good choice and when it isn't. But I'd be curious your take on that. At some of it, it comes down to skill sets. And like if, if you're brand new to the idea of Jamstack and there's a bunch of different things you would have to learn to to move to it, like don't. Like if you're if you're building an application and you're comfortable with your setup and you can get done what you need to in a streamlined manner, that's great. Like that's that's really what matters at the end of the day. If you're if you're a developer that doesn't have a lot of experience in deploying servers and managing servers and updating servers and things like that, this is a great way to then give you like a lot of power as a developer to create full stack applications, but not have to worry about some of those so some of those other things that come with traditional servers. So I like at the end of the day, it depends. I think my biggest recommendation is like try some of this stuff out on a smaller side project and see what you think. In terms of scalability, the stuff can really scale. The idea of like static sites in general, one of the big benefits is scalability and speed. Like you can you can serve these files really quickly because you're not having to interact with a database. And then there's less security concerns because you're not interacting with a database real time and you don't have the traditional server. So my my recommendation always for any of this stuff is like build something, follow a tutorial, see what you think. And then and then if you have specific questions, like you can reach out to lots of people on Twitter and other blog articles and videos and just kind of see like, is this maybe one specific thing a concern or can it be addressed and how? Yeah, I like that way of phrasing it too. And it's, I think what's kind of inspiring about all of this is that you can get so much further on these sort of like individual projects than you used to be able Mm -hmm. to because back in the day, I remember running into some of these challenges and that was just like a hard stop. (laughs) Like, I, I mean, I wanted to do like user management and authentication and there was just straight up no option because I was, it was basically like, oh, let me read this PHP tutorial that's going to scare the crap out of me about like how to properly do like, you know, build forms that take p- passwords and storing it. And it's just, 
I mean, it's overwhelming and it's enough to make you just totally stop unless you're working on something in like a corporate setting or a bigger thing where you have like some sort of support structure to mm-hmm. help get you through it. And nowadays it's like, okay, well, you hit auth problems. There are services that are out there. They're available. You have content management problems. Well, check it out. You, you <laughs> have places to put your images. Like there, there's a lot more out there than there used to be. So when you run into those situations, you're talking about like those side projects, you can get a lot further. You can build some pretty cool stuff just tinkering on your own nowadays. Yeah, I've I've kind of a, adapted this mindset of like at this point in my career, I feel like now I'm I'm just learning and continuing to learn how to put different things together. Like I, I don't need to build out all of those individual feature sets, right? Like those things can be taken care of for me with other services. Now I'm just figuring out how to take what pieces I need, put them together, and then ship an application. And that that part is what I get excited about and what I care about at the end of the day is just being able to send something out for people to use. Yeah, and I think the the last uh, sort of topic or thing I want to get into asking you about is about like the content creation side of things. I guess what makes you want to like, what has driven you to sort of share your findings, um, talk about this sort of thing? What drives you to do that sort of stuff? Yeah, I, the biggest thing that I, I never knew I had until I got into it and then stopped doing it and missed it. It was just a passion for teaching people. Like I love... Like YouTube videos are not as one-to-one, right? Like you're not interacting with people in person, but you see positive comments and they say like, wow, this tutorial really helped me learn X, Y, and Z. Sometimes you see some negative ones, although not as many as you might expect. So like that, that commentary has been really positive. I love teaching in person as well. I'm actually currently teaching a bootcamp at nights. And it's although it's virtual, I still get to see those like those aha moments for people. Like things start to click, and they're literally like changing their careers. Like they're learning programming from scratch, and to be a part of that is so inspiring and so much fun. And then like I don't know, it's just it's just fun. I it gives me a reason to learn new stuff. It gives me kind of a creative outlet on like the video editing and like learning how to market myself and like create cover images. Those are things that I'd never done before. So now I'm learning a little bit about like. Those sort of things and, and how to be an entrepreneur and how to like take control of my career, I think really is what it's about at the end of the day. And that led to the role that I'm in now where I get to continue to create content. It's just something that I enjoy. It's something I'm passionate about. And now I get paid for it full time with a job and then also make some extra money on the side as the like the entrepreneurial mindset there for the content that I create. And it's hard to hard to argue with like doing something that you really enjoy for fun and then also making money from it. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And I I've also like I like that angle of it, even for like a career advancement sort of thing, because I found too that there are a lot of developers out there, right? There are probably developers that are just as capable as as you listening to this or, or us here. But there are fewer people that are really good at also like writing or mm-hmm. speaking or creating videos. And those skills come up like more often than you might think. It might be just hey, I need to write a really good internal email for Mm -hmm. whatever reason to convince people of things. Or I need to give a really good internal presentation because my boss needs to be like, I want to be work on a certain project or I think this is the best direction for our company. So I know I I can sort of relate to this because I found that those sort of skills that you might not think are good for advancing like a software developer's career, like that's not the sort of thing you, you necessarily expect can actually lots of times be more valuable than... I don't know, really knowing the React APIs really, really well uh, sort of thing at the end of the day. I, I talk about like exactly what you just said a lot. There's a lot more to being a successful developer. There's a lot more to be, to having a successful career than just writing code. 
And like one of the things that stood out for me at, at my career at FedEx, and I, I ended up getting like a skip level promotion at the time. And that's not something they really do, to be honest. But it came from like my ability to communicate, my ability to advocate for the technology, but in a way that non-technical people could understand. And there's not that many people that can do that confidently and that well. So another aspect of this is like on your resume, like you can say, Hey, I'm, I'm a strong communicator. Hey, I, I really like, I really understand these technologies well. And that's cool. But those are just literally words on a piece of paper. They, they almost mean nothing. If you can then point people to a YouTube video to prove that you can speak, to prove that you know how to translate technical topics to, in a way that other people can understand and that you know the technical stuff, like that's proof that like YouTube at this point is my portfolio. Anyone that's looking to hire me, if you want to know about my skills, go look at the 200 YouTube videos I put out and you know who I am and what I'm capable of as a person. Yeah, it's a good way of phrasing it too because it, it's more powerful than... I mean, one of the, the things about corporate software development is a lot of your work is just private. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's something that will never see the light of day, which doesn't mean it's not valuable, but it does make it hard for your career long-term because you could have worked on the most amazing, <laughs> innovative thing, but you can't show it to your next prospective employee. It's going to be behind some firewall or, <laughs> or whatnot most often. So I, I really like the idea of just having a public track record and hey, like bring it back around. You can use the jam stack, right? To help uh <laughs> to help show all the, the things you've been doing and all the, the the fun tech you're using and such. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm always encouraging people to create content in some way, especially if you're someone who's looking for a job or or looking for your first job. You you kind of need something extra. And it's it's a little unfortunate at times that like it makes such a big deal because the expectation is not that like everyone has a lot of time to create content because we all have things going on. We have other full-time jobs. We have families and stuff. But at the end of the day, it just really helps. It gives some sort of validity to the, to the words that you put on a resume. So if you could write an article on Dev2 or Hashnode, even if it's not your own personal site, if you can create a video on YouTube, if you can do those things, now you're, you're proving that to other people that you know what you're talking about, you know how to write and speak. And those are skills, like you said, that just come up and they're invaluable in a, in a successful career. And I think everybody too has some unique thing to talk about mm-hmm. too. Like so there's something about your job that is interesting. You're solving some problem that someone else hasn't thought of, or you have some sort of unique take to write about. Because I know that comes up a lot too. Like, well, what am I going to do? You know, I don't have anything unique to say. I, I usually tell people like that, you'd be surprised as mm-hmm. to the people that you can help and the knowledge that you have. Yeah, the I like the way that I put it for people is like everything that you have learned and know at this point, somebody hasn't learned that thing yet. It doesn't matter what it is, it doesn't matter how simple you think it is, like somebody hasn't learned it yet, so somebody can benefit from it. Well, James, this has been really awesome. I've enjoyed this conversation quite a bit. Is there anything you feel like we haven't covered in terms of Jamstack, uh, content, Auth Zero, anything else you feel uh, we should note here before we get into picks. Uh, I I think we talked about a lot. We talked about a lot of different uh, cool technologies. If for more on that sort of stuff, like I've got my YouTube channel, James T. Quick, and I try to cover a lot of different technologies and use that as a way to kind of explore and have fun for myself. So I I do lots of lots of stuff there. But yeah, I think we I think we talked uh, talked about a lot of different aspects of the Jamstack and and different technologies. Awesome. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, 
get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. So we can go into the picks and I can get us started. I'm going to pick, my pick isn't especially unique this week. I'm going to pick Mario Kart, which is not a new game or anything interesting. But I realized at some point that for some reason, I'd never gotten my kids into Mario Kart. And it feels like they'd be missing out on childhood if they, they never got to play the Mario Kart experience. So I'm trying to, we've been playing it this week pretty heavily and I'd forgotten how fun it is and like a group experience to play with a, a whole group of people. And I also want to check out, I don't know if you've seen, but they came out with like a, a Mario Kart where you actually have like physical real world carts that oh, like wow. you can like buy gates and there's some way where like you're playing it on your Switch, but there's actual like, like almost like RV cars that actually go around, you build a course in your house and such. So I want to try that, but I've also found that demand for these things is outrageous. Like you have to like go on eBay to find these things. So I don't know if I'm actually going to be able to get one of these by Christmas time, but that that'll be my goal. And hopefully I'll be able to pick that uh, later in the year. Yeah, I'll have to keep an, an eye out for that, or I guess an ear out on the podcast to see if you if you come up with that. I have a little like a little side story on Mario Kart. I never really played Mario Kart much, like occasionally until college. And my friends were really big into it. And it was like senior year, like last month, like when we're getting ready for our final exams, like last exams we'll ever take. And we got really into doing a time trial on one specific map. So what we would do is like someone would play that map until they would beat the record. And then it was like immediately the next person's turn and they would drop everything and play until they beat that time. And we just went back and forth for a couple of weeks where we would just like drop our books and then go and try to beat beat the best time. That was maybe not the best thing to do at the time, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I've actually, you can watch like, I've gotten fascinated by like speed runs and people that mm -hmm. do this like at a ridiculous level. And like it's part, I, I partially admire people that can do this because it's like insane to get that good at like one very mm -hmm. niche specific thing. But also you think like, man, that's a crazy amount of time <laughs> that you have to spend like optimizing that exact thing that you do for like just, you know, sometimes it's like a matter of minutes of just getting things down to absolute mm -hmm. perfection. It's just sort of fascinating. Yeah, we were we were going back and forth by like milliseconds. Like when we would be <laughs> records, it was by milliseconds usually. Well, cool. James, do you have any picks? Yeah, um, I've got two. So one on the technical side that I've started using recently a lot myself. It's a Chrome extension called daily.dev. And what it will do is like if you open a new tab in Chrome, it will just list off related articles. So they kind of go through Hashnode and Dev.2 and articles that people post in different places. And then they put it on here and they've got like an upvote system and a comment system. And I've had a couple of articles uh, that have been picked up there, which is really cool. But it's, it's just really nice. Like if you have five minutes before a meeting or something, you can see a list of articles, click on one and go and read it. And a uh, nice way to kind of see uh, what other people are talking and writing about. The other thing is is not uh, tech related at all, but my wife and I have recently started playing uh, golf. So I got her clubs for her thirtieth birthday, and we've played every week for the last maybe almost two months now. 
And one of the things I wanted was something that I could like use to practice at home. And I bought... It's like a little chipping net. So you can practice your, your short shots, your short chips. Uh, they've got like three different buckets. So you can try to be pretty precise about which one you get it in. And then with it, I bought just a series of like foam practice balls. So I've got 40 practice balls and I can just sit there and try to chip them into the net for as long as I want to now. That's pretty awesome. It's a pretty pandemic safe sport too. Mm-hmm. So that's actually... I might have to get into it. It's a little too cold here though, this time of year. The golf courses are already sort of shut down. <laughs> yeah, it's starting to get cold. We've probably got a few more weeks just because Memphis and Tennessee weather is kind of up and down. Uh, so I think we will have at least a few more times to go out, but then we'll we'll probably won't be able to play for a couple of months. And I found the the name of the Mario Kart game is Mario Kart Live Home Circuit. So I'll oh, cool. post a link in here in the show notes if people want to check that out. Well, James, this has been a lot of fun. If people have any other questions, they want to reach out to you, follow you, you want to give some like links or best places that they can get in touch? Sure. James Q Quick on almost everything. So Twitter, I'm pretty active on YouTube channel as James Q Quick, uh, jamesqquick.com. And if you have comments or questions or anything, feel free to reach out on one of those. And if you're interested as well, I run a Discord server called uh, Learn, Build, Teach, where we talk all about web development and share resources and stuff. So you can uh, send me a message and ask for a link to that if you're interested in joining as well. Very cool. Well, we'll make sure we're going to get all those links in the show notes so you can check those out if you want to follow James. But thanks again for joining. This was this was a lot of fun. Hopefully people learned a bit more about Jamstack. I know I did. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. All right. Until next week, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.